You know, we're in this season where you will often hear this kind of quiet and hush or maybe hear a kind of a little timpani drum roll. And you'll hear a person say, uh, the envelope, please. And the winner is, right? This is award show season. Everything from the Critics' Choice Awards to People's Choice Awards to Golden Globes to Oscars to Emmys to Grammys, and I could go on and on. The Wyzetta Free Show Awards will be coming soon, too. But um, you can imagine the scene, if you would. Here, if you would think of it this way, Jesus, instead of actually going to the cross and, and, and then dying and, and setting up this kingdom, which we are aware of, this heavenly kingdom, which will become an earthly reality at some point, can you imagine Jesus establishing his kingdom at that time? Not dying, but establishing his kingdom. And at that point afterwards, you know, it's been established throughout the universe. Rome is no longer the one in power. Israel has become great and mighty. And then there is the award show. Just imagine that the timpanis are kind of playing. And, and here you, you, you have this award show. And in the front, in the, the very center table, right, right where everyone is, you know, seated is Jesus and his family, his mom. And, and around them, the brothers and sisters, you had the red carpet, you know, as they're on their way in. One of the brothers goes, yeah, I, I really couldn't believe it. At one point, we actually thought he was going crazy. We tried to take him away. But, you know, wow. And it's kind of, you know, if you know a little bit about that life of Jesus, at one point, the family thought he was going. Well, anyway, OK. So and then over here is a table and there's, you know, six of the disciples here and another six over here. And they've got their plus ones and they're sitting there. There are a few people awake here. Um, or maybe it's not that funny. Anyway, um, at a certain point, there's a hush. The lights dim. Their timpani begins to roll. And the person says, the envelope, please. The envelope's given. And they open it up and they say, the winner is sitting on the right and the left hand of the Messiah. James and John, and they jump from the table, and the mother of Zebedee is there of James and John, and they're hugging each other, and there's this just sense of exultation, and the camera scans the other disciples, and they're not too happy. Okay, maybe this is kind of silly. But these guys, the 12 who had followed Jesus and signed up and given everything to follow Jesus, they're like you and me. They're, they're trying to follow him with all their heart, and yet they're very much sinned and stained by their sin and their selfishness and their own desires because they're always thinking as they're going along, what's in it for me? And in their mind, they're not looking at some kind of reward that's going to happen someday in the, in the future. They're always looking at the award show that's going to happen in their life and their lifetime. And I don't think that's too far from a lot of us. We sign up to follow Jesus and we kind of go, well, Jesus, I thought you'd take care of my finances. Jesus, I thought I would have this relationship I really wanted. Jesus, I thought that if I signed up with you, things would get easier. Jesus, I thought I would get some of these awards right now. You see, this question surfaced back in Matthew 19. There was a perfect candidate who came up. He was morally religious. He was a leader. He had wealth and he had desire and he had talent and he had everything you think you could imagine a guy should have. And yet this guy doesn't make the cut. He he himself self-selects out because he's not willing to give up everything to follow. 
And Peter and his buddies are looking at that and they're thinking we gave up everything. And Peter, who is the one who speaks always for the twelve, he kind of in his mind goes, um, Jesus, we're wondering after we looked at this, what's in it for us? Now, you have to catch this in chapter 19. His response to them is interesting. He doesn't immediately go, hey, wait, guys, listen to what he says to him. He goes, there is something in it for you. Here's the truth. Verily, verily, if you are a King James person. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. Catch this. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. They're thinking when the kingdom is established in just maybe a few weeks, because he's talking about it coming to a, a, a conclusion. There's going to be supposedly he thinks he's going to die. But we know we have more faith than maybe he has in himself right now. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne. Listen to this. You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones. In fact, you will receive 100 times anything you gave up. And they're kind of listening to that. And Jesus wants to correct their their mindset. So he goes on and he tells a parable about the workers in the field. And he makes it very clear that, you know what, if you are living this relationship on a merit, I give this up so that you have to do this for me. If you're living your life in relationship to God, hey, look at God and my obedience. And because I'm obedient, now you have to do this for me. That's called a merit work system of faith. It's not about a relationship with someone. It's all about a contract with someone. And Jesus goes, you know what, guys, I want you to serve. I want you to be involved in this whole process of of giving your life and following after me, which is really following after your God the Father in heaven. But it's not about merit. It's not about what you give up. So you're looking all the time at what you're going to get. And we live that way. I, I got to tell you, I live that way. And God does give awards. He does give grace. It's not by merit. But if you live this way, your eyes are going to always be on what other people are getting. And your focus will not be on yourself and God. It will not be on what God graciously gives. And so he goes on after that little parable and he says, here, let me share with you a little something about what's going to happen. You keep thinking the renewal of all things is going to happen. We're going to have this award show and we're going to handing out the awards to the right and left. And he goes, you keep thinking that way. I want to tell you something. He predicts his passion and his death. And now we get into this last part of chapter 20. We're going to take the last two stories together. But the, the key verse of all of chapter 20 after Jesus says, I'm resolutely ambitious for one thing in my life. It's to come. It's to die. It's to serve God first and foremost. My eye is always on him. In verses 26 to 28 of chapter 20, Jesus kind of explains the heart of his whole life. And in it is explaining what the heart of our life should be like. Here is the measure of greatness and success. And contrary to all cultural norms that you experience day in and day out, contrary to what your own flesh, which is your self-human nature, is constantly desiring because of your fears and insecurities, this desire to put yourself first and want things for you, he says this, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Remember, he's been saying in chapter 20, here's the theme. The first will be last. That's the last part of chapter 19. And then he hands it, frames the parable he gives. The first shall be last. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The measure of greatness is not in power and position and status, but in serving and giving your life for others. 
And Jesus is telling all those who follow you and me, you can be expected and you can know that you will be rewarded. Glory is out in the future. This life will not end in death. Your life. Your commitment to God will not be in vain. Catch that. Your commitment to God and what you give Him will not be in vain. But your award show may not be on this earth. Because that's not what it's about. So note these verses as you would. I'm going to be covering a lot of them, so hang on. Chapter 20, verses 20 through 34. Then the mother of the sons of, of the Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Oh, we can. We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. My father will determine at the right time in the right way when you will be awarded and rewarded. And he will always be faithful to you through this process in this life. No matter what you do as you serve him, he will give you the ability to serve him with all your heart and life. But stop here and just think. What Jesus is saying is there is a way to glory in this life. You will be rewarded. And it will be in God's way in God's time. Yet the path to glory involves a cup and a baptism. There is a way to glory. There is a a way to this life of greatness in the eyes of God. There's nothing wrong with having that desire to want to be great in the eyes of God. There's nothing wrong with wanting with the disciples with all their hearts to say, I'm going to give you everything, God, because I trust in giving you everything. I get everything. It's a matter of what that everything is, and it's a matter about when that everything comes. In our desire for security and for love, it's easy for us to begin to get tied up in the things outside us. We kind of think in some ways, if I just get some more money, I get some more status, I get a little more power, I'm a little more popular, I'm a little more affirmed by those things outside us. When my circumstances in my life are going well, then I feel good. I feel secure. I feel at peace. I feel relaxed. I feel a sense of joy. And it's real easy for us to say, God, as I give my life to you and I do these things and I'm obedient to you, then I expect that these things all kind of come together in such a way that... What happens is that you begin to draw your security and your sense of comfort, your sense of affirmation, all the things you're supposed to get, you begin to start putting it out here. And when you come to faith in Christ, the reason you come to faith in Christ is you come to the end of your resources. What you do is you come to the end of what you can do and you begin to realize that the end of yourself begins the beginning of God. And it's you then you thrust yourself into him and his grace and you say, I give myself fully and 100% over to you. And now it's a lifelong learning of how to live that way so that your life is wrapped up in God and God alone and the fact that he is gracious and he is merciful and my eyes are on you and all that happens in my life and it's not about what I'm going to get out here. And yet, we're so much like the disciples. We're so much like the mother of Zebedee. 
We do make this, if you make this one, you know, you can make this play, this commitment, this where the work of God is in your heart and you, you give yourself over to him and you recognize your sin and you ask him to come in and be your savior to lead you and guide you and you begin to follow him. But what you'll find is how often as you do that, you will come up short and not follow well. You will be like the disciples. You will also find yourself often saying, but what's in it for me? I deserve this. And God says in these parables, it's faithfulness I give. And even more than that, grace. Just keep your eyes on me. So Jesus changes the name, the game plan. And in our hearts, we're often asking for things of God. And you'll find we're off the mark. Look at verses 20 and 22. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons comes to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down. She's not worshiping him. She's recognizing that this son of her, of Mary, is this one who is going to be the Messiah, the leader, the, the great king who will establish the kind of kingdom that David and Solomon had, but even greater than what David and Solomon had. This king is going to be the king over the whole universe. But Mark leaves out something really interesting here in, in, in this account. If you were to read it in Mark, he leaves out this fact that it's the mother of Zebedee. He refers to the fact that James and John come to Jesus. I think it's one and the same. I think what happens if you understand what's going on, then the request of James and John and the mother of James and John is really pretty simple. It makes sense. It's natural. You have to understand who this mother is Matthew, Mark, and John list these women. So I want to take a quick little step into a um, passage of Scripture that will give you an idea who the mother of Zebedee is. If you look at the uh, crucifixion accounts of Jesus and the women who are standing around the cross, they list these different women. And I'm going to give you the account from Matthew. Matthew says that Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee, in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six, are at the cross. If you look at Mark, Mark fifteen forty, it says Mary Magdalene. You see that repeated again. Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses. You see the second one, the Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. That's you see in, in Matthew and Salome. And then you look at John. It says in John chapter nineteen, verse twenty-five, Jesus's mother is there, his mother's sister. Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. You'll find that Mary Magdalene is named in all the lists. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, or Joseph, is the same as Mary, the wife of Clopas. It just uses the mother of James and Joseph. The wife of Clopas just gives us the same, same Mary. Therefore, there's a third woman here who's described. Matthew calls her the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Mark calls her Salome by her name. I think she was well known because John tells us who she is. She's Jesus' mother's sister. So it's not unusual in that culture for James and John, who are full cousins of Jesus, and the mother of these cousins, the aunt, who is the sister to Mary, to begin to start saying, you know what? There's a sense of entitlement, of relationship. When, you know, the king's coming to power, you should be thinking of your relatives. G James and John, they're full cousins, so I want to come. Guys, let's just go and, you know, I'm the sister and let me as mom. I'm convinced of this. Some of the most ambitious men in the world were raised by ambitious mothers. That's just my observation. So here you have... 
This ambitious mother coming with her sons in a sense, where, where Mark will just say it's the sons because their heart and desire is one and the same. They don't care because they're just as ambitious as she is. In fact, they're called the sons of thunder for a reason in, in Scripture. However we get to the top, we're getting to the top. And Jesus says to them, as he exposes what's in their heart, there is a way to glory and it involves a cup. Look at his interest in the response. Verse 21, what is it you want? He asked, and she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. When the award show takes place, call on us. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can. How often do you find yourself coming to God, asking him for things, going, God, if you just do this, yeah, I can do it. You, you get this quick kind of simple sense of, yeah, you know, if you just do this, God, and give me that, and I, yeah. And, and what I find is they're so wrapped up in this earthly honor and glory, they want the award show now. And I find it interesting how often, even in my own heart, the things that I think that God should give me, Jesus goes, you know, not really. And I love Jesus' response. He, he understands our self-centeredness. He doesn't get all angry. He doesn't shame them. He, he, he almost is, is Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14. says he has this heart. As the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Catch this. For he knows how we are formed. He does not forget that we're a bunch of dust. He realizes he's in the process of changing us to become like him when we follow him. And so he says to them in verse that follows verse 23, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. And I want you to understand this. He says, drink from my cup, not drink all of it. You're going to taste it. But to sit at my right and left is not for me to grant. That's what the father does. You're on the right track, guys. Follow me with your life. But understand this, the way to glory involves suffering and sacrifice in this life. Honor entails humiliation. There is a cross to carry. There is a cup to drink. There is a baptism to undergo. When you look at this, the cup that Jesus was to drink, all of it was crucifixion. But if you look at the cup that James was to drink, it's really interesting. If you look at Acts chapter 12, verse 2, he's the first of the 12 to be martyred. Not the first martyr, but the first of the 12 to be martyred. The cup for James was martyrdom, and he would drink of that, taste it. The cup for John. Do you know what the cup for John was? Tradition says John lived to an old, lived an, um, a long life and died of natural causes. But you know that he spent a good portion of his life in solitary confinement on a little island all by himself. And you might think, well, that's not so bad until you start to think about the fact that he spent three years with Jesus, was trained by Jesus, went out and did some great things for Jesus. And then he gets set aside. Have you been set aside ever in your life in ministry? Kind of going, God, I thought you were doing all these things. You invested all this in me and I'm sitting in solitary confinement. What's this about? Your cup is uniquely designed for you. 
The choices you make may bring about some consequences. They may not be the choices that God would want, but even those choices God can work for good because your cup is to fulfill what God has for you. And my guess is that in the process there will be suffering, there will be times of sacrifice if you're willing to walk in it. And in that process, what God is seeking to do is to prepare your heart, to make your soul, to make you ready to be in glory. And to make you a glorious display of His presence even right now. So that we watch a a little video that sees, that we see Joe and Lizzie, these Chinese students the church is ministering to, who say we read the Bible, but you know what? What really brought us to faith in Christ more quickly than anything was the love and joy of this community. Your life is to be a demonstration throughout it as you drink of the cup, which is going to involve suffering and sacrifice. You will, in this walk, have spiritual warfare. There will be an attack against your soul because what God wants for you is opposed to what Satan wants. God wants you to have life into its fullness and understanding of this life. And this life is not necessarily honors and awards and trophies and money and wealth and comfort and maybe a home in Florida or Phoenix or up north. It's all about a life that is given over to God so that as you walk with Him, whatever your cup is, as you drink it, He prepares you to be just like Jesus so that through you shines the glory of God. That's the kind of life that we're about as a body. That's the kind of ministry we want to develop. It's the kind of ministry that drinks from the cup that Jesus Himself drank from. Not because we want to suffer, not because sacrifice in itself is a good thing, but we all know that if we're going to become like Jesus, it's going to require us to look at our heart, to see those things that come up, and then to have them exposed and deal with them. Because God is in the business of making servants Which gets to the next point. There is a qualification for glory. What's interesting in verse 24, when the ten heard about this, they weren't really too thrilled. If there was an award show and those two jumped up, James and John, to get the award of the right and left throne, you could bet they wouldn't be too happy. They felt they gave up as much. Their eyes, because if you're on the merit system with God, your eyes eyes will constantly be on other people. I'm just not getting what I deserve. It's just not fair. In, in God's eyes, what's so interesting, so often in the lives of believers, he looks at churches. I think so many churches are filled with people who still have never moved to what I call a spiritual place in God, are still in this, what it says, carnal or flesh or this immature life where our, we're like children going, God, you just aren't being fair or you're not being fair to me. And it's all about fairness. And God says, it's not about fairness, it's about faithfulness. It's about grace. And if your eyes are on me, I will do things inside of you and in you and through you that you could not imagine. So what is this qualification for glory? When the ten heard about this, they were indignant as their eyes were on the two. And Jesus, it says, called them together and said, there is a qualification for glory, guys. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles loaded over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. I could spend a lot of time on this. I'm not going to. In that day in the Roman culture, you knew that power and you knew authority. That was what was great. Out in the world, Jesus says it's quite natural and quite true that the greatest and most esteemed man is the one who controls others, the one who speaks, people jump, the one, lady who waves her hand in the entourage, moves to her every woman. And her wish becomes everyone's command. But Jesus says there's a qualification for greatness. The measure of success in my kingdom 
is in direct opposite to what you find in the world and what you may find in your own self-centered, fearful hearts, what you think you need. Anyone, he says, among me can understand this qualification. It's so simple. And so he goes on to explain it to them, and then he gives them what the supreme example looks like. Not so with you, verse 26. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Among my followers, he says, the badge of greatness, the Oscar, the Emmy, the, the trophy of honor goes to the servant. That's the way of the kingdom of God. Servants are made as they drink the cup, they experience the baptism, they know what it means to follow God's will. They give their whole life over to them, just like the disciples did. And through that process, God begins to transform them. Through this suffering and sacrifice, he's making a servant, because it is a servant that is the one who qualifies for greatness. And the one who serves the most has the greatest reward. So the one who goes to a cross and dies on a cross for you and for me, the word ransom means that he gives his his life is like a price paid to set someone free, like a prisoner setting someone free. He says, I give my life. I actually die that you may have my life and I will set you free from your self-centered, from your self-dominated thinking about me and begin to birth in you if you open your heart to me. And you, for, and you ask for forgiveness of this kind of life, I will come in and give you the life that sets you free to serve others. And what's interesting, the word servant is just simply the word. It's a word that would have, in their day, meant this, helper. It's as simple as that. The qualification for one who is the greatest is the one who helps the most. It's the one who says, I want to be a helper. And then he uses another word. It's the word slave, which in that culture, in that day, was the bottom rung of what it meant to be great. They had no rights. They had nothing. They were at the beck and call of the one who was the master, who was their Lord. And they served as slaves to that one Lord. And he says, the one whose heart is like a slave to the Lord and says, God, my life is for you. Whatever you call me to do is the one who is a servant. He's a helper. That's the qualification for greatness, for glory. And I was at this point as I was preparing this message and I had just a simple question come into my heart. I felt like the spirit of God was just saying in this around this idea of helper. How much is your life, Kevin, about really helping others? And I ask you the same thing. In what ways is your life about helping others? I'm not just talking about from time to time. I'm talking about your life being lived out the identity that you are a servant and a slave, a helper to others because you're in relationship to God. What are your motives when you help others? What percentage of your time is really dedicated to helping others? What percentage of your money do you invest in helping others? If you were to take out your calendar and your checkbook, where would you find that it points to you or others? 
The kingdom of God is not a first-come, first-served system. Everything is reversed in God's economy. The poor are rich. Those who mourn are comforted. The hungry are filled. The first are last, and the last are first. The greatest is least, and not necessarily is the greatest the least powerful. Not necessarily is the greatest person not have awards at work and not has done really well and has titles and has made money. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying, just like the rich young ruler, the greatest is the one who says, what I have, I give to you fully and 100% so that what it is can, is can be used for you as you want me to use it. I will be a platform for your life in helping others. And then this last part. I could spend a whole lot of time. I love this, these verses because here is the practical demonstration, the model of this, glo- of this glory. The measure of greatness is not just in being called a servant and having that identity. You actually see it displayed in a person's life. That's why I think this last story is in here. He's taken all of chapter 20 to explain this. And then he gives this big thing about um, being the one who comes to give his life for many. And then we read this. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, on us. And the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. But they shouted all the louder. You'll find that when you go through and there's a need that God is wanting you to hear, it gets louder. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them, what do you want from me? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Listen to this. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes and immediately they received their sight and followed him. What you find in the servant is this deep compassion. You see the example of Jesus is so practical. If anyone, seriously, think about it. If anyone was preoccupied at this point with their task, it was Jesus. He had just told them he's on his way up to Jerusalem. His face was was like flint on that direction. He was on a mission. He was going to give his life. Can you imagine if you were, your life, you knew that soon you were going to have, you were going to be crucified. You were going to be giving your life. And you knew that you had been training some disciples and they're not getting it. Can you imagine what's going on in his mind? He could easily have walked by preoccupied. He could have easily been caught up into himself. He could have easily been just too busy. He's got other things. But the crowd even is working in his favor. They're trying to quiet him. Yeah, God must be in the quieting that the crowd is doing, right? But that's not the heart of a servant. A servant very practically demonstrates this. What is it? What is this need? How can I help? So one of the things I want to do is just call us to get in the ballgame. I really want us to move from being spectators to the point where we become players and say, God, you know, some of you are doing this, but some of you are in your life right now probably wondering, God, how can I be a greater helper in your kingdom? And so I've I've asked if Ray Ellis would come up and just share, because I thought his story was really unique. Um, It's the way God seems to work. And and so I'm going to ask Ray just to take a moment and tell us how God worked in his life. Thanks, Ray. Good morning, everybody. This is a story about a journey uh, in my life and my wife's. Uh, We'd been coming to church here for maybe two or three years, and we were going to the navigators class. And another couple came to us and said, you know, we've been preparing the coffee here every single week, and we get tied up with that. We don't get a chance to fellowship with others, and we're wondering if you would uh, consider helping us. And uh, I kind of drug my heels a little bit. And my wife says, come on, we're going to make coffee. And uh, so, so it's really easy. All you do 
is listen to your wife. No, listen to God. What's in front of you? What's the next thing? If, if it's in front of you, there's a need, step into it. It could be greedy, ushering, ushering, whatever it is. Go ahead. So we started making uh, coffee. And then once Sunday, I said to my wife, you know, they've got these carafes that you pour the coffee out of. And I said, I want to start pouring coffee for people. And the reason I want to do that is it gave me an opportunity to look at people in the eye. And at that time, we were wearing name tags, and it gave me an opportunity to find out who people were. And um, I went home and I thought I felt really good about doing that. And then uh, an opportunity came up to, to do some greeting. And uh, again, I was kind of dragging my feet and my wife says, come on, we're going to greet. <laughs> and we just love doing that because it's an opportunity to see people when they come in the church and we find out, you know, whose kids belong to, to who. And, and we just found it's a great opportunity. And then a year ago in December, there was a gentleman came out and talked to the navigators class. And his name was Peter Wohlers. And Peter is the director and the, and the pastor at Source Ministries over in Minneapolis. And he talked about uh, what his ministry is about. And kind of a thumbnail is it's a, it's a ministry to homeless. And there's 20,000 homeless people in Minnesota. And most of them are in the metropolitan area. And most of them are young. And, and they're running from bad home situations. And when they run, they don't have any support, either uh, from their family or friends or economic support. And they get involved in behavior that's bad for them and just within a matter of days and they get themselves into trouble and then they end up on the streets. So he started talking about his ministry and I was intrigued by the, the mission and the ministry they had. And I was intrigued by this guy that had dreadlocks halfway down his back and I found out it's been 20 years since he had his hair cut. And, and this just intrigued me, but he had a real passion for what he was doing. So I called him up and said, I'd like to have coffee with you. So he said, come on over. So I went over to where their, their ministry is, and they call it the fallout, and it's at 26th and Stevens Avenue. So we sat down, we started having coffee, and I said, Peter, I don't know what's going on, but I've had this word in my head, and I don't know whether this word's something I'm making up or whether this word is, is coming from God. And he said, well, what is a word? And I said, it's procurement. And he looked at me and he got this great big grin. He said, we've just bought a building that needs to be completely renovated and it's going to be housing for young girls that have been caught up in prostitution. And he said, I need a project. He said, I need to procure a project manager for that. I, I got to stop it there because I love how God works. He takes a guy of Rayco Construction and Ellis Properties. He begins to get him to serve in little ways, and he, as you're faithful serving, God leads you to this. And now God acts by giving this word in his mind, procurement. Tells it to the guy who's you, in his mind is the same word we've been looking to procure someone. I just love how God works. Anyway, so I guess in my little editorial. Part of what happened in this process is that uh, uh, this, this thing just keeps getting arms and legs, this, this experience. About also about two years ago, um, every morning I, I would stop at my health care provider and why is that? And it's called Starbucks. <laughs> and there were some guys that were huddled in the corner and they had a Bible and I was watching these guys. And so I, I greeted them. And one day they said, would you like to bo- join our study group? And I thought, you know, I, I have never done that. I've been busy running businesses and doing those things. And I thought, I'm going to do this. So I got involved with these guys. And the, the fellow that leads our group, he kept talking about the church outside of the church and about service. And he kept saying, you know, if you were walk into our churches, 
on a Sunday morning and ask how many people believe that they're saved and going to heaven. He says probably 80 to 90 percent of them would raise their hands. And yes, they walk out of the church and they don't do anything. So I started looking at my life and I thought, you know, I'm guilty. I'm a consumer Christian. And I wasn't comfortable about that. And so I started praying about that and said, Lord, where's the opportunity for me? And several weeks ago, Maury Kampsner in our Navigators class was talking about service and, and where can you serve. And he says, just look up and see what's in front of you and start there. So I looked at the coffee ministry we started in, and that's where it started. And uh, already I've got some other opportunities I'm looking at and talking to some people about what the next venture will be. I will. And in the course of this, I had an opportunity to probably share with 100 people about this project. Uh, mm-hmm. I'd go into Starbucks and guys say, hey, what are you doing? Where are you going today? And, and, uh, and we had a builder here in, in Plymouth that donated a house that was going to be demolished. And we went down and we took all kinds of things out of there, about 14,000 of the granite countertops we used. We had other items that we sold and on Craigslist and donated the money. And people would come out and we'd tell them what we were doing. So it was really an exciting opportunity and fun. So let me ask you, were you ever sorry that you said yes to go ahead and serve coffee in that Navigator class, that first step? Um, not about the coffee, no. Once, once we started doing that. <laughs> okay. What <laughs> you said what you Constru- were sorry about. But <laughs> Construction some days was a little more challenging. Like I, I told people, the first Saturday I was there, I had 20 volunteers showed up, and every one of them had a toolbox, and they had one tool, and it was big. <laughs> the but, hammer, huh? Yeah, the hammer. <laughs> that was good. So what I wanted Ray to share is just this, this simple concept of Jesus heard a need, the Spirit of God's work in his heart responded to it, and the adventure God has given you has been really exciting. But it all started with that little simple thing of saying, God, I'm available, I'll do this. And it's amazing how God begins to move the heart that's willing to be moved. And I may be speaking to the choir, but that's what our job is if you're moving and serving. Help others to understand it's just that simple. What's in front of you? When you hear the cry, don't pass it by. Because God has something great. I'm going to ask the team to come and just uh, play this song that we're going to sing. Thank you so much, Ray and Carol, for the way you guys have been so supportive. And one of the things I want to say as we sing this song, I, I always come to this point and I go, this is not just an opportunity for you to look at where can I serve. You may be in this place right now where you're just crying out to God, too. You're like one of those blind men. You're in this place where you're going, I, I need a touch from God. I have to tell you, God hears your cry. He will never pass you by. And this word ransom that he uses means this. He substitutes his life for yours. He basically is saying the righteousness that I lived and died and, and brought to the Father and was fully accepted in is yours if you'll just receive it. It's where it starts because when you open your heart to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want a relationship with you. I ask you to forgive me. I want you to be involved in my life. And you, he hears your cry and he comes in and frees you to be a servant. And if you've never made that commitment, just hear this song. And make it your prayer, would you?